Thank you for inviting me here. Uh, I'll keep it very, very brief because uh, well, it's a Friday evening, isn't it? And I hope you've got better things to do in a while. But uh, what I want to talk about <laughs> a little bit is, uh, is the politics. Uh, and obviously, while Catherine says that the fundamental constraints are legal, I'll disagree fundamentally and say it's all about politics. And politicians will bend the law at their whim. But the one, the one caveat I'd start with, I suppose, is as a political scientist, what we're meant to do is to look at the interplay of variables and try and figure out what it is that leads to political outcomes. The one thing that has become abundantly clear to me since June is in order to do this, you need to have some constants. Uh, and it seems to me in British politics at the moment, we're scrabbling around trying to look, at, look for constants before we can start to sort of make any judgments about what the relative, relative impact of the variables are. Let me start with something that Jonathan said, which is one of the interesting things about the situation we find ourselves in now is it's a kind of phony peace. We voted to leave the European Union, but virtually nothing else has happened. Yeah. Uh, that being the case, we're in a weird period where everyone knows that what will happen will be one of the most important things to have happened in this country for a very, very long time. So journalists have to write about it. But you're getting an awful lot of noise around an awful lack of facts. Uh, at the moment, we seem to be sort of governing by catchphrase. So Theresa May went from tautology, Brexit means Brexit, to, as Catherine, I think, hinted at, oxymoron, the Great Repeal Bill, which is actually a great keeping of a load of laws bill. Yeah. Uh, but with very, very little detail. And I think it is important to stress the fact that I don't think government has as yet figured out what it wants from this. I think. The Tory conference happened at a particular moment. It happened at a time when we had a government about whose policies we knew next to nothing. So a lot of attention was focused on Birmingham. And when the Tories did what political parties do at party conferences, i.e. talk to the base, a lot of assumptions were drawn about what they were going to aim for in the, in the Brexit talks. And I'm not sure that that was a wise way of doing things. I genuinely do not think the Cabinet has made up its mind yet. And I think there's a lot to play for in debates around the cabinet table. There is also, of course, a civil, a, a government machinery to build. Uh, we are in the process of trying to create the civil service departments that will be responsible for taking us out of the European Union. Progress actually is not that bad. It's absolutely not the case that the Department for Exiting the European Union is struggling to take on staff. In fact, the complaints in Whitehall at the moment are that they're getting the best junior staff from around Whitehall, and could they stop, please? But actually, it still takes time to put systems in place, and in particularly to put in place a system that's going to have to coordinate across all our departments as we negotiate with Brussels. So I wouldn't expect things to happen in a hurry. I, my guess would be that Theresa May will probably wait till March until she triggers Article 50, and it's only around then that any kind of clarity will appear at all. But I think if you look at the politics, you can come to some firmish conclusions about the way things might go. Let me start, first of all, with this, uh, this argument that's going on. It's being played out in court at the moment about uh, Article 50, whether or not Parliament gets to vote on Article 50. The first thing I would say is whether or not Parliament does get to vote on Article 50, it strikes me as fundamentally inconceivable that they do not vote to trigger it. Mm -hmm. It might well be that a majority of MPs supported remain, but research by people like Chris Hanretty at UEA has shown that 70% of English and Welsh constituencies voted to leave the European Union. Uh, the political pressure on MPs not to try and overturn the outcome of this referendum will be massive. So those, and I know there are some, there are certainly quite a few in London, 
who cling to the hope that ultimately parliamentary involvement is a way of avoiding Brexit, I would dismiss that hope <coughs> straight away. The second thing I would say about this is, for those who kind of hope that we manage to stay in, it would be an absolute catastrophe for the European Union if Britain stayed within it. Okay? Britain would be staying in the European Union on membership terms that are worse than those it rejected in June. Because, of course, we won't let a renegotiation that David Cameron secured in February. If Britain continued, continued to be a member of the European Union, it would never, ever, ever again pass a budget. Because long-term budgetary deals have to be agreed by unanimity, and it is impossible to foresee political circumstances in this country in which a British government could go and say, yeah, we'll approve that, we'll approve paying, whatever the sum might be, it will be we will be a contributor. Uh, I think the rest of Europe are coming around to the view that actually this is going to be painful, but ultimately the, the alternative is worse. You staying in with the political baggage you would be carrying will be a car crash for all of us. Uh, which is why Donald Tusk has moved on from saying that Brexit will be the end of Western civilization to saying in that letter he circulated before Juncker's State of the Union speech that Brexit might be an opportunity for the European Union. People are moving on. Now, what does politics tell us about life beyond Article 50? Well, it says one thing, and here I suppose credit is due to Matthew, which is that the, vest, the, the messages of vote leave have resonated well, well beyond the referendum itself. So when Lord Ashcroft did his polling uh, in August that was released in September, a staggering 81% of respondents said any kind of contribution to the EU budget is incompatible with Brexit. Uh, some of the key themes of that campaign still resonate quite strongly within public opinion. And as Matthew said, the views on free movement are far more varied than you might think. There was some very good polling done for British Futures in August. But the, the fact of the matter is there seems to be, across the polling, a significant majority that wants to be able to reduce, at the very least, unskilled migration from the European Union. That's the direction our, our, our public opinion is pushing us. And I think... One of, the, one of the interesting things about our politics now is, and I have no reason to disbelieve Matthew or any of the other so-called liberal Brexiteers who talked about what their vision of Brexit was, it does strike me that the danger is that the current conjunction of political circumstances pushes us towards something else. We're living in a political context where we have a Labour Party, it is hard to see many people at all outside of metropolitan areas voting for anytime soon, and a UKIP whose voters might be up for grabs if that party falls apart. And it does seem to me you can see some threads here of uh, Theresa May's Conservative Party, with its rhetoric of the left behind, of a country that works for all, trying to create a strategy that appeals to disaffected Labour and disaffected UKIP voters at the same time. And here you see this particular blend that was there for all to see at the Conservative Party conference, of a kind of... Ed Miliband-esque centre-left economic platform with a slightly UKIP-esque social platform. So centre-left economics mixed with right-wing social values leads to the possibility of trying to start to make headway into in all those traditional Labour seats where no one in their right mind is going to think about voting for Jeremy Corbyn. And it seems to me that if you believe in this Tory party strategy, then a non-liberal, or if you want a hard Brexit, makes perfect sense because Theresa May sells herself as the Prime Minister who took back control, who cut migration, and in doing so shrank the City of London. 
because that is a fairly populist agenda in the kind of seats that she is targeting. And for all those business allies who turn around to the Conservative government and say, what are you doing? She has a ready response. Well, you could vote for Jeremy if you'd rather. Uh, so it does strike me that there is a political strategy in the making here. It's far, far too early to tell, of course, but just sort of looking at the, you know, looking at the runes, as it were, it seems to me that if this is the case, and if Tory strategists are planning this kind of uh, political strategy, then a liberal Brexit might not necessarily be something that they are particularly focused on. And that's just us. Catherine mentioned the other side, the 38 votes, if we go to a mixed agreement. Ultimately, if we want to remain inside the single market, and there are some who do, I, I accept that Matthew does, and I'll come back to that in a minute, what we have to try and do is find a deal that allows us to change free movement rules whilst continuing within the single market. What this at base will require is for you to foresee a situation in which a populist Polish Prime Minister stands in front of his Prime Minister and says, listen boys and girls, I want you to sign this deal today that says the Brits can have what they want, but none of you can go and work there anymore. And that has to happen across every single European Parliament, even if they've got an election next week. Okay? The odds on this happening seem to me to be remote at best. Now, sure, as Matthew says, everyone has an incentive to come to a good arrangement. They trade with us, we trade with them. It's absolutely no coincidence that the stock market that fell the furthest on the 24th of June was the Italian stock market. Why? Because Italian companies realise that British capital is needed to make the EU's capital markets union work. This is one of the key things that the Italians were hoping for that their banking system that is on the verge of going under would benefit from the liquidity that capital markets union would bring them. So that's why the, the Italian stock market suffered very badly. No one is denying for a moment that everyone has an interest in a good deal. The problem here is, as Catherine was talking about earlier, it's the law. If we end up leaving the European Union without a deal, member states don't choose to impose tariffs on us, they have to, under their WTO obligations. If we leave without signing a treaty, we are subject to tariffs. Similarly, whilst it's absolutely the case that we comply with all EU law now, if we leave without signing a deal, what the European Court of Justice is going to ask for is future assurances. It's all very well that you comply now, but how the hell do we know that you will continue to do so in the future? And those, and this is those are the reasons why I think, and here I agree absolutely with Catherine, but the two years is not going to be enough to sort these issues out. Unless we get some kind of transitional arrangement to act as a glide path from full membership to something else which preserves trading ties whilst meeting the conditions that you've set out, then I suspect that the nature of politics, both here and in Europe, means we're in for a bumpy exit absent such arrangements. Thank you.